0: But you know, uh, I came from a fundamentalist background, and in my background, people like Marcus were the devil. And, uh, And one of the things that really struck me was what a deep reader of the scriptures Marcus was. In my fundamentalist background, we thought we had a corner on the Bible. What I later learned is that we knew how to pick little verses out of the Bible and make them say things they maybe didn't want to say. But Marcus was ready to go deep in any passage of Scripture and wrestle with what was actually there. And it was from Marcus, I think, Marcus and Dominic Crossan that I first learned, heard the term domination story. And uh, that concept, as soon as I heard the word, uh, as I opened the pages of the, the Bible, I saw that this idea of a domination story was... It ran from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, and, and it was, in, in some ways, the, back, the background bass note against which all of the other music of the scriptures were, it was interacting with, in conflict with, trying to nudge into something else, to bring it into a different key, so to speak. Um, by the way, if you come tonight, we'll be talking about that uh, and some other related stories in more detail. But that domination story is the story that runs so many of our lives. We have to claw to the top. We have to fight our way to, uh, to a position of power. It's, it's related to words like empire, patriarchy, kleptocracy, plutocracy, oligarchy. Yeah, I, I, I don't know, you, maybe you haven't noticed, but we're kind of in the beginning of a, another election season. And, you know, for I, I notice this in many election seasons. Some candidates approach the election season as part of a domination story. They are ready to claw their way to the top, vanquish their opponents, make fools of them, call them names, disparage them, do anything to dominate and win. It's all about winning at all costs. Others, you'll notice this, keep your eyes up and notice the difference. Other candidates in any election cycle will act as if they are doing job interviews for a job in public service. And do you see, you couldn't have two more different uh, ways of approaching an election season. But that domination story uh, controls an awful lot of people's lives. A domination story that always is saying who's on top, who's number one, who's number two. And it tends to put men over women, white over non-white, rich over poor, urban over rural, white collar over blue collar, Ph.D. over GED. It's all about who can have supremacy, who can be first, who can be top, who can be number one. Now, in the old world, uh, we achieved domination through fists, through rocks, through spears, arrows, clubs, guns. Cannons, missiles, bombs. Now it seems like we achieve domination through misinformation, bots, uh, other ways. But the perhaps most popular way to achieve domination in the domination story, we, we discover that if you get enough of these, you can find your way to power, You can find your way to domination. In this new world, it's domination through dollars. And that's why Jesus focused in Luke chapter 16 on the issue of riches. He told two parables, one right after the other, that began with the same words. There was a rich man. There was a rich man. Now, I think, especially as you grapple with the content of these two provocative parables, you realize it's not just about money. I, I mean, money is part of it. Um, and, and I need you to know that when I talk about this, I'm not just talking about you or somebody else. I'm talking about me. Uh, if uh, You might wonder, how much money do you have to make to be part of the 1%? Uh, and in the United States, if your average annual income is over $350,000, you're in the 1%. the but guess what? For those of us who say, yeah, I've never been close to that, um, you're globally, to be part of the 1%, you need to make about $35,000 per year. So I'm going to guess that a whole lot of us in this room, maybe not all of us, but a lot of us in this room, are part of the global 1%. So we have to maybe, as we listen to this uh, parable, we have to not just say, oh, this is talking to those other guys who have three yachts. I only have two. Um, and who have four vacation homes, one for each season, I only have one. No, I have to listen to this, especially in the season of Lent, which is a season not of examining your neighbor's faults and moral problems, but of self-examination. So we can hear what this text is saying to us. It begins in Luke chapter 16, verse 19. There was a rich man, dressed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus. Now, I need to stop right there. You understand, already Jesus is doing something transgressive in the world of storytelling. We give names to rich people, and poor people remain nameless. Jesus just flipped the script. The rich man, no name. The poor man has a name, Lazarus. Next line is is stunning. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered in sores. Now, in the minds of Jesus' original hearers, they were very oriented toward cleanliness, the word clean and unclean. But those were categories that were deeply embedded in theology, society, morality, clean versus unclean. If you had an open sore, you were seen as unclean, dangerous, stay away, you could catch what they have. And you know, this language of clean and unclean works really deeply in us. One of our primary reflexes is the gag reflex. And when we can paint something or somebody as unclean, something that would make you gag, something that is disgusting, it it makes this word disgusting a powerful word for labeling people unclean. When we can label somebody that way, it gives us permission to get rid of them, to do anything we can to get rid of them. So, in the Rwandan Genocide... In, in uh, the early 1990s, you know that what happened is the uh, Tutsi people were called cockroaches so that to commit genocide was really just a matter of fumigation, getting rid of something dirty and unclean. Now, watch when people with power Use words to label people in some ways as unclean so that you will feel you're getting re- rid of an infestation if you get rid of them. You understand, this is, this is, Jesus is choosing his language carefully here. Here was Lazarus covered with sores who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. In other words, he, the rich man's garbage would have been good for him to eat. Even the dogs would come and lick his sword. So we just took unclean and disgusting and we made it downright repulsive and unsanitary. Jesus has done everything he can in a couple of lines, like a poet, to render Lazarus, to help us see Lazarus the way the rich man saw Lazarus. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. Now, do you understand what Jesus is doing here? He's almost setting us up for something like a joke. You know, a rich man and poor man walked into the afterlife. And then what happens next is so interesting. Jesus says, in Hades, where he was being tormented, He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Now, we didn't expect the rich man to go to hell. And it's not just hell. Now, here's where it gets tricky for us Christians, because the Christian religion early on, I think, made a couple of very, very serious errors. They acted as if the Lord's Prayer actually read, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, May we go to thy kingdom when we die, where your will is done, unlike this miserable earth. But it's not what it says. You understand, the Lord's Prayer is not an evacuation plan. May we go to heaven. It's a transformation plan. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But we very cleverly shifted all of our focus away from this life and this world to make the Christian gospel be mostly about what happens after you die. Now, in this, I think we could not be more out of sync with Jesus and his teaching, but it is so deeply embedded, especially here in the American South with our tradition of hellfire and damnation preaching, telling people who are going to go to hell. Well, a couple of things are interesting here. Jesus is going to tell you who goes to hell, and it's not who you were expecting. But not only that, he chooses the word Hades Hades is a Greek word. Jesus is a Jew. He's using a word from Greek mythology. Isn't that interesting? Which might give you the idea that what Jesus is actually talking about is not telling you the structure of the universe. He's using mythological language to make a point not about the sweet by and by but the fierce urgency of here and now. So there's Abraham, and he's got Lazarus by his side. And the rich man calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, child, isn't that interesting? Abraham's attitude toward the man is not hatred, you miserable scum. It's an attitude of even love toward this child who's suffering in Hades. Remember that during your lifetime, you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, evil things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, Between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so and no one can cross from there to us. And by the way, Jesus is now perfectly recapitulating the myth of Hades in Greek Greek literature, which had the river Styx separating uh, the damned from uh, from the saved. And so then the rich man says, Okay, then Father... I beg you to send him to my father's house for I have five brothers that he may warn them so that they will not also come into this place of torment. I've got to tell you, I've read this story so many times In preparing for today, I read it uh, you know, a bunch more times. And as I read this, something hit me that had never hit me before. This is the moment when we see how much the rich man, doesn't get it. I mean, how much worse could things get? He still doesn't get it. Because he's thinking about his brothers who are still alive. And he's still failing to see the thing that he never saw when he was alive, which is Lazarus is his brother too. He's acting like Lazarus is somebody's errand boy to send around, you know, oh, just go send Lazarus. Lazarus is only important as a functionary for him and his rich brothers. He still doesn't get it. What will it take to get through to a guy like this? Abraham replied, your brothers have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. From the beginning, the law of Moses has been telling us that we ought to care for poor folk like Lazarus. From the beginning, the law of Moses has been telling us how important it is for us to be generous to those in need. And if we didn't get it from the law of Moses, the prophets came along and they made some audacious statements like God doesn't care about all that sacrifice stuff. God cares about you having compassion on your neighbor. The prophets made it so clear. What does the Lord require from you? To give a lot of sacrifices, to be fastidious, and all these different, you know, matters of law. No, look. You can boil it down like this. Here's what God desires. Do justice. Love mercy. Have compassion. Walk humbly with your God. So the law and the prophets will give him the message he needs. He said. No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. You know what's so interesting, brothers and sisters? In a few weeks, we'll celebrate Easter. We'll celebrate someone rising from the dead. And so often we act as if the resurrection will prove something. But according to this parable, somebody rising from the dead won't make any difference to people who already aren't listening. Whatever the meaning of the resurrection is, it's not going to prove anything to anybody. It it has meaning, but its meaning is not enough. If your eyes are closed, if your ears are closed, you're not going to get the meaning. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets neither will they be convinced even if someone rises from the dead what will it take to break through to people who are caught in in inside the bubble or under the dome of the domination narrative people whose whole imaginations and consciences and and awareness has been so completely formed by this narrative that runs our culture, that runs our society, that's so deeply embedded in every television show and movie and political speech. How will we break through to people? It, maybe if the ocean level started rising, we would say, you know, maybe we're not living the way we really ought to. Maybe if there were more intense and violent storms, we would say, maybe we should look at the way we're, our value system and and the way we're living. Maybe that would get through to us. Maybe if insects started dying, or if fish populations started plummeting, maybe if we started having huge forest fires that were unprecedented, maybe that would wake us up. Maybe if the average income for people of color were tens of thousands of dollars per year less than white people, maybe that would wake us up that there might be something called economic inequality that's baked into our system. Maybe if for the last 40 or 50 years, middle class people worked their backsides off and stayed about the same while the people who have the most already found their wealth double, triple, quadruple, maybe that would wake us up that we need to pay attention. You know, maybe if we had people who are indicted at the top levels of government, left and right. Surely that would wake people up. Maybe. You know, um, I think what would have shown a change of heart in this rich man in this story is if he would have recognized that that poor, disgusting man with sores at his gate had all along been his brother. And if instead of saying, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, he would have said, Lazarus, my brother, have mercy on me. Can I just tell you, I I know this isn't in any of the creeds, but I just think Jesus is smart. (laughs) I think he sees something. Uh, have you ever noticed in the parable of the prodigal son that the brother comes to the father and says, that son of yours has done all these terrible things. And the father says, that brother of yours was lost and is now found. Like, the, the whole point of that parable is to make the older son realize that the younger son is also his brother. And here, this parable is begging us to for to, is begging us to yell to this rich man, why don't you get it? What will it take to wake you up, Lazarus? Is your brother? <coughs> I had an experience last year that uh, I don't think I'll ever forget. It was one afternoon. I was in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and. Uh, I was on a tour with someone named Jim Bear Jacobs. He's a Native American uh, who took us on a tour of sites around the Twin Cities that told some of the story of the native peoples, the Lakota uh, and other native peoples in that region. And he started off by saying to us, those of you who are from European descent, he said, in European culture, you tend to think of time as a line. And something that happened a long time ago is very distant from you. He said in indigenous culture, in our culture, and in many indigenous cultures around the world, we don't think of time as a line. We think of stories happening in a place. And if we're near the place where that story happened, no matter how long ago, if we're near the setting, we're near the story. Can you see the difference? You know, I, I every time I've ever come to Memphis, I have a wonderful time. You people are really nice people. This is a wonderful place. But because I was with Jim Bear, Jacobs, and he told me of a different way of seeing, now I come here and when I'm in this place, I can't help but think of the Paleo-Indians who lived here long ago and then the Chickasaw who lived here and then were driven out. I can't help but think of 1830 here in Memphis when the native peoples in the Trail of Tears were taken to the river and crossed the river here in their forced march uh, during which so many of them died to be put in a concentration camp called a reservation. Uh, I, I can't think about, I can't be here without thinking about something I just learned that your congregation uh, came to terms with just recently. that out in the parking lot behind us, when we're in that place, that wasn't just the home of a rich uh, family in Memphis history, but that that rich family ran a slave market in the parking lot. And to be here is to remember that story and hold that story. And I can't be here in Memphis without thinking about the massacre of 1866. And when we had another massacre this one of Muslims in, in, uh, in New Zealand last week. You think about the history of massacres and that massacres happened here, senseless killings based on ignorance and prejudice and hate and misinformation. And I can't help but be here, of course, without thinking of 1968. And to be in this place and to have those stories around us Does it make you think, what will it take to wake us up? What will it take to get through to us? Maybe if someone rose from the dead. Or maybe if we found our backsides in hell. Why would Jesus tell a story like this? (coughs) I think Jesus, in a way, this is like an apocalyptic novel that takes you to the worst possible outcome and says, maybe we will never get it. Maybe we will never wake up. Maybe if someone rose from the dead or if we found ourselves in Hades, even then we would still be in our ignorance and denial. Maybe we would never wake up. And maybe Jesus knew it's only by letting us simmer in that possibility that we will never, ever get it. Maybe that's what it will take to help us wake up.